My name is Julia. I'm a registered nurse working at a large trauma hospital in the San Francisco Bay Area. I arrive at work at 7 p.m. I'm a night shift nurse, and I'm there for the next 12 to 13 hours. Patients that we are caring for at this time often require a lot of bedside care, turning, cleaning, feeding. We empty the trash, we change the beds, and we inevitably act as their emotional support system. We reuse our N95s and our face shields throughout the entire shift. Two weeks into working regularly on this COVID unit, I contracted COVID-19. We are nurses. We're not afraid of sick patients. We're afraid of going to work and not knowing if we'll be able to protect ourselves, our coworkers, our community, or our families. If you'd like to learn more about how you can help us, please visit getusppe.org and stay safe. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Five Things Podcast. The Five Things is a podcast where we dive deep into five topics from social media and share our thoughts as to why it would matter to you. With me this week, two regulars, we have Beth and Juliana. Hi, Beth. Hi, Juliana. Hello. Hey, Kenny. We're going to have some fun today. And this is why we're going to have fun. Because we're talking about these specific five things. The first is that Instagram accidentally hit its like counts. Twitter blocked the COVID-19 vaccine misinformation. Pinterest launched a showcase of female-owned businesses. Facebook ended their ban of political advertising. And finally, Facebook photo tagging lawsuit was settled for $650 million. With that, we're going to dive right in to Instagram accidentally hiding like counts. Believe it or not, this was not a new product. It was a bug. Uh, if you went on to Instagram uh, recently, you may have seen that your like counts were hidden. It showed you who liked your photos, but it didn't tell you how many. That vanity metric that we all love. And people went berserk. And there were all these different theories that maybe it was, we want you to focus more on the photos uh, versus the like count. Uh, but in reality, they are back. They have returned. They are not going anywhere quite yet and that it was a bug. I don't think there is anything here for marketers other than maybe, just maybe, this will spark yet another conversation for us to move away from vanity metrics and more into KPIs and metrics that matter to your brand health and your brand growth and your business goals. We do happen to have a data expert on this call, so maybe there is something there. Uh, but ultimately, in, in my mind, this is just a quick hitter, nothing too crazy. Beth, what do you think? I mean, one could hope that we could get away from likes as a as a true indicator of the success of an asset. But I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, but I think the lesson learned is even giant tech companies make mistakes and we all bounce back from it. The world is no worse off. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm obviously not speaking from a data strap perspective, so uh, apologies here. But at least for myself, I know that I've been likeless for for months now. And so it'd be interesting to know what learnings Instagram has uh, from all of that. Or, you know, like you said, Beth, if essentially the way that people are making content, the type of posts they're creating, interacting with, you know, if that hasn't really shifted at all. 
Yeah, that could be an interesting case study of like, did people like things less when it wasn't visible? How many likes were there? I have my own metric of success and benchmark for my likes on Instagram. I don't know if any of you do this, but ultimately, if I get to 72 likes on a photo, I know that I've like, it's it's gone higher than normal. Like that's my number. Um, so outside of true vanity, like the only posts that ever do well are the ones that have like my wife in it where I'm being like kind and cute or like my dog where everyone's like, oh my God, that's adorable. But like my artsy fartsy New York City photos, they don't do very well. Um, so on that note, for any of you who cared, um, no, it's good. You have your own personal definition of virality. Yeah. 72 and above, and you broke the internet. And also (laughs) I just realized that the people in my life only care about my wife and dog and they could care less about what's on my mind. Um, (laughs) (laughs) not surprising. Um, okay. Well, let's move on from this vanity thing and move into something a little bit more substantive. So Beth, Twitter blocked COVID-19 vaccine misinformation. Super important. What happened? All right. So Twitter is, quote, ramping up its efforts to tackle COVID-19 information specifically around the vaccine. So what Twitter has done is they've now put out new labels for tweets that are identified as containing misleading claims. Um, And they've also, this is crazy implemented a strike system to suspend and even permanently banned repeat offenders. So we've, I think we've gotten pretty familiar with Twitter, the labeling of misinformation. If you try to reshare a tweet that is labeled as misleading, Twitter will direct you to the COVID-19 information center. If you decide to continue to share the, or even share the tweet, you will be that will count as one strike against you. And so how the strike system works is one strike of posting something misleading, there's no account level action. But two to three strikes you get for each of those strikes, 12-hour account lock. Four strikes you will get seven days of account lock. Five or more strikes is permanent suspension. Which I just think is like awesome, kind of nuts. Um, but as an advertiser and specifically one who's working on some COVID-19 vaccine work, it, it is a little, I guess, heartening to know that, um, some of the information and misinformation that's being spread could be put to rest and have less potential to go viral because of these new rules. What kind of messed up baseball game do you get five strikes? Also, when it comes to, like, the greater public health, um, why are we giving people so many chances? I think it's awesome that they are doing this. All of the terminology you're using sounds cool. Strike force. Pick off. Like, everything that's happening sounds amazing. But, like, I think we're giving people too many chances. Yeah, but five is, like, permanent suspension. You're off. I mean, think of how many strikes Donald Trump got with his misinformation. I feel like this is a real big step up for them. I love well, it that thing. it wasn't it wasn't subverting democracy. It was healthcare misinformation that really set Twitter off. Like <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, it's just wild how, you know, Twitter was kind of slow to crawl in, you know, enforcing 
rules and banning people and making it clear that they, you know, actually are enforcing some sort of like content, uh, like morality hierarchy. And now they're just kind of, you know, swinging for the fences. I, I have to applaud them. It will be interesting to see, you know, how other brands recognizing that, like, yeah, there might be a little bit of backlash in the first go around. Um, you know, as you make your as you make your uh, stance clear, but you know, once you stand up in it, feel free to go as wild as you want. Beth, was it manual? Is it a team of people, or is it all being done with like tech, like machine learning? I'm guessing it's a mix of both. I'm guessing it's machine learning and then some human oversight. I think about it this way. I hope it's real people because like if you can be sarcastic on the platform and then get booted, like that makes me nervous. <laughs> We're here like, of course the J and J vaccine turns your hair green. <laughs> like and then all of a sudden you have yeah. a strike. <laughs> well, first strike is no action. So that's good. It's like you'll you'll get told like, hey, not funny, Kenny. And then second and third, you just get locked out for 12 hours, which isn't even a full day. It would be okay. What I, what I think is Speak really for yourself. I mean, you might not be okay, Kenny. <laughs> um, Twitter love over here. But what's really good, I think, is that it also, when you try to reshare a tweet, that it, it directs you to the right information. I can just think of so many people who don't understand when they're resharing content that's like, totally misleading and they're perpetuating falsehoods but are not ill-intentioned in doing so at all so yes good on them well good on them disclaimer we are not medical experts and the j and j vaccine does not turn your hair green um all right so juliana i love this coming out of international women's day and women's history month Pinterest launched uh, their showcase of female-owned businesses. So why don't you give us the deets on that? Yeah, to keep the train of positive news rolling, uh, the new Pinterest showcase, you know, as mentioned, is meant to highlight female founders and promote their efforts via a dedicated Pinterest shop platform. So uh, Pinterest has done this kind of uh, with some other uh, groups previously, you know, using their shop to highlight sustainable products and Black-owned businesses. Uh, I think this is actually the fourth collection launch that follows this theme. So, you know, there was the Black-owned businesses in August, uh, small brands in like November 2019, uh, in April prior to that, you know, small sustainable brands. And one of the things that's really interesting, you know, not only the, uh, the Women's History Month aspect of it, but, you know, Pinterest noting that the effects of the pandemic on working women, they've been disproportionately hit by the economic fallout. And, you know, last December, women actually accounted for 100% of the jobs lost that month. You know, it's being claimed, called the she session. So the fact that, you know, Pinterest is taking their role um, and their ability to kind of expose people to um, small brands and, you know, get people discovered and recognizing not only, you know, the, this history month, but a really necessary uh, kind of group of people that are being economically impacted. It's awesome. I think Pinterest, you know, we talk about it a lot. It's just like knocking out the park again to use another baseball metaphor. Uh, so across the board, big fan, but wonder if you guys have any thoughts. I mean, yeah, I'm a huge Pinterest fan and this feels like right up their 2020 alley with everything they've done um, over the past year to be inclusive and use their platform in the right way. Kudos to Pinterest. 
Pinterest is and always will be a secret winner in everyone's book. They don't try to be anyone else other than themselves. They are constantly focused on investing in women-owned businesses, in up-and-coming creators, in diverse creators, in up-and-coming influencers. They are building community, and they win at their own level, at their own game, even though they are lumped in with a bunch of copiers. Like, literally, they're not trying to be, like, Facebook and Instagram are trying to be, you know, TikTok and Twitter and Snap, and they're all copying each other. And Pinterest is over here being like, we do us. Come, come join us. We're amazing. Marketers, if you are listening, Pinterest is the place to go. Have some fun with it. You can do amazing breakthrough work. I love Pinterest. Pinterest for president. <laughs> um, so on that on that note, <laughs> I love that. I think it's awesome. There yeah, that. And, no, I was just going to say, like, you know, I, I used to actually be, uh, for some reason, just like a, a Pinterest abstainer. Um, but the work that they're doing, I think, has kind of drawn in people like myself or maybe like the younger realm and thought that it was mainly for like planning your wedding or planning a baby shower uh, and recognizing that, you know, it's just as useful for discovering a pair of like shoes to go clubbing when that was the thing uh, as it is for these major life decisions. So, you know, Pinterest just hitting all the age ranges. Kudos. And, well, you know, oh. the Pinterest algorithm is also really good having planned my wedding using Pinterest and now doing all the maternity stuff on Pinterest. It's like they're almost tracking my journey and serving me up just the right content for where I am in my space. So I I love the way they use the algorithm in a helpful way, not a product selly kind of way. Definitely. I love that. Well, we're now going to go from things I think we've all really liked to things that will probably bother us. Um, in our newest section of the Five Things Podcast, things that will probably bother you. So, Beth, Facebook ended their ban on political advertising. It's been one year to the date of this recording since we've all been in quarantine. I feel like I'm living in a loop. Tell me what's happening. I know. Pinterest or president, Facebook, come on. Um I just have to say, when Facebook banned their political ads in November, everyone on this podcast said, we will see how long that lasts, despite the word indefinitely being part of that message. So probably not surprising to us all that Facebook is now ending their indefinite ban on political advertising. Um, But I do think that they're taking some really good steps to help mitigate some of the um, issues and misinformation and and um, companies that did not uh, want to use political ads in the excuse me in the appropriate ways um, so they have lifted the band but they are planning to take a closer look at how these ads work on their platform and to better inspect the companies that are posting these ads. So people, whether they're companies or individuals, will have to go through, it sounds like, some sort of background check to be able to post political ads going forward. Okay, Facebook. (laughs) Maybe it's not all so bad. Uh, 
I do think non-misinformation-based political advertising designed to reach communities is a very good thing. It's the exact same rationale for how we market products. Like we can't lie about our products and we have to tell the truth and we can advertise to communities. I think Facebook has to be very careful because they got, a, they like, I don't know if they recover from another disaster like what they had in November. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing about the ban was that it included ads for social issues, elections, or politics. So I think the wide range of it, you know, it's probably good to allow people to have some some ability to post ads in those arenas. And it was probably getting hard to manage what was appropriate, what was not. Um, but I agree. I think small, small municipalities and people who are running for local office should be able to use the force of social media to get their message out there. So if they truly are working to make sure that the right people are posting these ads and they're, they're, being received in the way that's appropriate and intended. Okay. Facebook would have to take a beat from trying to copy all the other apps and focus on keeping their app in the right direction. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I mean, talk about a perfect foil to the Twitter uh, thing, you know, a little bit higher up top where Twitter, you know, they, they went hard and fast and they're, they're keeping at it. You know, Facebook might, uh, I think there was a lot of conversation originally when Facebook was kind of putting its foot down about uh, it seeming kind of drastic, um, like it, because it was reactionary, they didn't really do the like proper vetting to ensure that the bans that they're implementing are going to be, you know, uh, to your point, Beth, like applied in a way that's not only useful for getting rid of misinformation, but doesn't essentially block the ability for people to get involved in politics. Um, so, I mean, assuming, you know, any brand out there, marketer out there isn't a Facebook, uh, I think that there this shows some allowance for now, maybe doing some critical thinking before rolling out something that is major just because it's the topic of note uh, and ensuring that it really reflects something that's sustainable. Um, and if not, you know, having the, you has got to have the, the the confidence to kind of bow your head and say, hey, you might have messed that one up, but, you know, take the steps going forward to ensure that it's something that's uh, that's useful and can be, uh, can be done for the long term. All right, everyone. We've got one more thing. And Juliana is going to tell you what it is. It's Facebook's photo tagging lawsuit was settled for a cool six hundred and fifty million. Yes, this is this is for all the uh, data privacy nerds out there. So Facebook was ordered to pay six hundred fifty million for violating the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act, um, aka BIPA. And so this was due to its practice of tagging people in photos using facial recognition without their consent. Uh, this has actually been years in the making. So the suit was originally filed in 2015. Uh, the agreement that Facebook would settle was determined only in late 2020. Uh, and, you know, with data privacy, it's pretty complicated, so I won't get into too many details. But really what one needs to know is uh, the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act uh, is among the strictest privacy law in the U.S. It's been a tripwire for companies that they keep stumbling on. Uh, especially now that we're seeing kind of a more democratization, normalization of facial rec- recognition and biometric data scanners. Um, and the law is especially tricky because people who have biometric info collected don't have to show like any proof of damages or anything gone awry. They just have to show it, the information was collected without their consent. 
Uh, and so what's wild is, you know, this law was passed in 2008, but it's surprisingly prescient. It's extremely future thinking. And so even though the 650 million, you know, is probably ch- changed Facebook, uh, this shows like a really interesting precedent. Uh, you know, government essentially used to just not be as fast as the development of technology. But we're th- I think a lot more now we're seeing that realizing it's not as fast as the development of technology. And so I think we can expect that there's going to be more BIPA-like laws that are really broad, really flexible uh, to know what it doesn't know is going to happen next. So from a marketer's perspective, just to wrap it, um, you know, it can, the thing that to really kind of take note of is like, you know, maybe you want to take advantage of like the newest, hottest tech capability out there, but really want to take a moment of pause and ask yourself if a morally dubious leg up, like could actually end up being a legally dubious one. So... Thank you. Very thorough. Uh, nailed it. <laughs> if I were a Illinois-based data security lawyer, I would have a dog or cat named Bippa Middleton. Um, you can use that at your next party. You're welcome. Um, on that note, we have come to the end of our time together. So I just want to say, Juliana and Beth, thank you for joining me on this Five Things journey. Joey in the booth, thanks for being here as always. As Uncle Cracker said, follow me and everything will be all right. Please follow us on Apple or Spotify. That's how you will know about our latest episode. If you're singing at home, so am I. Do you have anything you want to tell us? Comments, questions, or thoughts, you can email us at podcastsatgrade.com. And we really hope that you continue to stay safe, stay smart, stay social. The Five Things are written and researched by Andrew Patti and Grace McDougall. Produced by Joey Scarillo and Danielle Hunt. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Guy Rosemarin with support from post-producer Ned Martin. Additional support by John Jenkinson and Christina Hyde. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.